everyone. Welcome back to the Earthdawn Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters with your questers, Josh and Dan. I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we'll be discussing all things quizzical because we're going to do email palooza number something teen. I don't even know. I've lost, I've lost count anymore. So if you have any questions for us, because by all means, these piled up for a while while Josh was on vacation and everything else happened in between, please drop us a line at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. We will get back to you as soon as we possibly can with your answer, our answer to your question on a further episode, whenever that future stuff happens. Yeah. Before we get into the emails, because we've got a lot of them, we have not recorded in like a month. Yeah. We're rusty. (laughs) No, no. Rusty, Rusty has written other stuff for us. Yes. I'm sorry. If you are listening to this the day that it goes live or very shortly thereafter, Deeper Secrets Kickstarter campaign. Oh, yeah. It has two days, two and a half days as of the release of this recording. It ends at 11 p.m. Eastern on Friday, August 25th. So if you have not backed that, if you were not aware of that campaign, please go check it out. Go to Kickstarter, search Earth Dawn. Uh, it is the only active Earth Dawn campaign currently. It is, as of right now, the most successful Kickstarter campaign that we have run, except for the original, but that also funded like five books. Yeah. There is a bunch of cool swag that is available along with part of this. I will briefly say, if you are an international customer and a little gun shy because of the issues that we've been having delivering product from Vasgothia and the stuff that has been produced for Grand Bazaar, I completely understand. All of the stuff for Deeper Secrets should be available after the campaign closes. International shipping is awful. And as I've said in other places, there's a reason why some companies in the U.S. don't even bother with offering physical products to international backers. Uh, It's just easier to let the regular supplier chain distributor system provide it. But for those of you who are continuing to support us, we certainly appreciate it because we cannot continue to do that without you. Agreed. I will say that I have already done preliminary layout on probably about three quarters of that book. So it's still in the works. It is still in the works. There's still, you know, a little bit of stuff that's that's going to need to be done. But after the difficulty that has been the last couple of years, we're hoping that uh, we'll be able to get things turned around a little bit. And we appreciate your patience and support. Fair. All right. On to the emails, because as we said, there are a ton of them. So I'm going to start with the latest one we got because it was the last bit edition. Uh, Hello there. First and foremost, congratulations on your 200th podcast. We're not quite there yet, but we're going to, but thank you in advance. Uh, I'm a new listener and player. And so far I've greatly enjoyed the game and the show. My question regards my middle-aged gauntlet of cinnamon, which I roleplay very composed and thoughtful. I intend to eventually have a rage moment, but I don't know how to play it. My plan is to ask the uh, game master to introduce a moment where I can roleplay my character very offended, probably by spotting someone using obsidian skin armor, or by trash-talking his life rock. But at the end of the day, I just don't know how to come to go from full calmness to rage. Should I play it as a barbaric rage sort of situation? Do obsidian sprout to violence in these occasions? How should I play this interaction knowing that I want to be lore accurate? Thank you very much for your time and help, Alexander. Well, there are as many different ways that an obsidian could react to such a situation as there are obsidian folk 
to react that way. There is not a single canon answer to that. Even saying, oh, well, they're middle-aged, which means they're a few centuries under their belt, for example. Yeah. I'm trying to think of good pop culture references to go with. I mean, certainly the stereotypical barbarian berserker rage is one way that you could go with it, especially if you have been playing the character previously as a more calm, stable, reserved, reserved kind of presence, having that shift to a more violent expressive, expansive reaction could certainly serve as a very strong contrast and be very effective in the moment. Mm -hmm. Particularly with a gauntlet, which is a discipline that by its nature also tends to be stoic and be the type that kind of stands there and absorbs the abuse when we covered the gauntlet discipline and the talent selections available to them and so forth, their build and their style tends to be defensive and enduring in terms of their approach. Yeah. And then counteracting, counterattacking with a single devastating blow. So that's certainly, again, like that sudden outburst of rage that might be more akin to the kind of expectation that you would get from your stereotypical Highland troll Sky Raider, for example, yeah. like who just mm -hmm. had his honor insulted. Yes. That's certainly one way you can do it and perfectly valid. The other approach that you could take, and this is where I was trying to come up with a good pop culture analogy, a good pop culture reference for it, mm -hmm. is to play that rage even more stoic, that quiet, intense... Simmering behind the eyeballs. Yeah, like rather than a volcanic eruption where you've got lava spewing everywhere and all of this pyroclastic and pyrotechnics and big explosion is to just play that rage, that anger, clamping it down even more to mm -hmm. a certain extent, like playing it incredibly tight, incredibly controlled, the sense that it is a hairline from tipping over that line into the volcanic eruption. Yeah, because it's like the analogy of this is, there's going to be one more straw that breaks it and lets that come out. Or by the thought is treat it like a pressure cooker. You are just slowly simmering and building and building and building pressure, and something is going to hit that valve, and that's when you get to erupt. Yeah. Again, there's no wrong answer. No. There are so many choices that would lead up to that. What are you trying to demonstrate as your character? What are you trying to convey? And I'm stepping into my actor shoes here for a yeah, moment. Yeah, theater geek. Go. Yeah, total theater geek. <laughs> Where you are trying to present that contrast, you're trying to present that moment, you're trying to convey perhaps what is going on. And again, the the volcanic eruption is in some ways like easier to play, but a lot of it would depend on the 
numerous role-playing decisions that you had made leading up to that moment. Is this Obsidian quiet but otherwise sort of easygoing and relaxed? Is this something where he is typically like a very terse, stoic, non-expressive individual? Basically just trying to figure out in the moment and with that character's personality and experience where they would go with it. Again, no wrong answers. There's no, oh, being close to the lore. The closest thing to the lore that I can think of is from the early stuff about Obsidian, both in the Barsafe box set and in Denizens of Earthdawn Volume 2, Yeah, where it talks about because of their longevity and their relationship to time sort of as a concept, mm-hmm. Obsidian are slow to anger, but when they are moved in such a way, it is very difficult to stop them, that it is yes. like triggering an avalanche. <laughs> and the degree to which that gets expressed in an individual character, it would depend on the moment and it would depend on, if it were me, how I had been playing them up to that point. Fair. Ultimately, what you may want to be going for is a strong contrast between what they have been, if they typically are not one to be expressive mm-hmm. and outgoing and emotional, if they're kind of somewhat flat in their affect or terse or of few words or whatever, then having that volcanic explosion of Hulk-like rage mm-hmm. could be a really strong contrast to indicate how much this is something that has affected them. Whereas if they are someone who is a little bit more easygoing and relaxed and might not be like the loquacious, joking around kind of troubadour type character, but is still kind of like an easygoing, relaxed, personable individual to shift that rage into a lockdown, flat affect, getting the job done and focusing solely on targeting this thing that is offending them to whatever extent. Again, that strong contrast can be very effective. Theater geek, I would act that out in my performance as the character, but different people have different levels of comfort with that. And you could certainly just narrate it in terms of describing mm-hmm. how the character is presenting compared to how they normally are or that sort of thing. There's no wrong answer. Agreed. I like it. I will stop uh, now before I continue on for another 10 minutes. <laughs> Josh is loquacious. Uh, So next email uh, from the solo RPG guy. Thanks for an awesome podcast. It helps a newbie to the game, but not a newbie to the hobby in general. Learn a game with both in-depth mechanics and deep lore. Give you a shout out in my last video, just spreading the love, Donald, the solo RPG guy. Yeah, this is a YouTuber. He sort of focuses on solo RPGing, which is to say there are some tools out there that allow you to play an RPG solo, even a game that is not necessarily designed specifically to play by yourself, but tools like uh, Epic GM, I think is the name of one of them, and things like that, that have like tables and other stuff that allow you to sort of have the story manifest before the characters and then you kind of deal with it. And when you get into, say, like a combat situation, you're kind of more doing it as like a tabletop board game kind of situation. He did a video about Earth Dawn. Mm-hmm. He did a solo combat situation 
um, with four player characters fighting some goblins, kind of just like a generic little dungeon combat kind of thing, and posted it on YouTube and uh, mentioned the podcast in the episode and linked it in the comments. Really good video. I shared it uh, on the yes. Twitter feed. I, I shared it a couple of other places. Really good. Um, and uh, it was a really good uh, e- example of things. So kudos to him. And, and I appreciate him for writing that in and bringing it to our attention. Yeah, agreed. Keep going, Donald. Uh, next one is from Ben. Hi, Josh and Dan. Had a bit of a hiatus from the podcast as I was listening to the Legends of Earth Dawn podcast instead. Gotta say, I'm a massive fan, and you can tell Cliff from me he's only allowed to Game Master as I love his campaign. I'm loving the horror dive you guys are doing at the moment. It's given me some great ideas for my campaign. I have a question for Josh, though. Was Zorg a greater or lesser bloat form? Did Cliff ever tell you, I'm thinking a greater due to how hard it was to kill, but I'd really like to know. Keep up the good work. Griffo from across the pond. I don't think that Cliff ever specified, but I was able to figure out based on (laughs) target numbers and such that it was a greater bloat form. Okay. I don't know if there were any tweaks to the stat block from the book that he might have made, but enough things were close enough that I was able to go, oh, yeah, this is what this is. Fair. I don't think he needed to add any masks onto it. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure thinking back now, however long ago it was that we actually recorded those, oh, that yeah. Zorg was a greater bloat form. Fair enough. All right. A uh, very quick one here from Patrick. I'm going to try and get the quick ones done first because we have longer conversations to have tonight. Uh, hey, Josh. Hey, Dan. I'm wondering if you could give me some examples for disbelieve of the illusionist spells. Really enjoying the show. Greetings from Germany. Patrick. So I'm going to talk about this from the fourth edition point of view, because that is the one that I am most familiar with at this point, And the one that I think is sort of most relevant in terms of what we're talking about here. And we're mostly a fourth edition podcast. And we're mostly a fourth edition <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, we talked about some of the stuff with illusions in earlier editions back with our first illusionist discipline episode back in like episode 30 or 40 something. Somewhere there. If you want to go back and and listen to that, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But we're sort of dealing with a couple of things here. One is that in 4th edition, disbelief is a specific mechanical widget. And disbelief only really relates to damaging illusion spells or damaging spells in general, which is basically to say that If you don't think a spell effect that is being cast on you, like Ephemeral Bolt, for example, is in fact a real spell and is only an illusion, then you just say, I don't believe that this is real. And so you don't really do anything to brace yourself or protect yourself from it because you don't need to. There's no real justification or anything I feel that you need to do to do that. Most people, honestly, most player characters are not likely to just decide to do that unless there have been indications or something that they know about the magician that they are dealing with might be casting illusions. It's generally not a good idea unless you at least have a reasonable suspicion that things might not be real to disbelieve a spell. The advantage of disbelief is that it is an, if it is in fact an illusion spell and you disbelieve it, 
you aren't affected by it. It doesn't affect you at all. Yeah. The downside is that if you disbelieve it and it is in fact a real effect that they say cast true ephemeral bolt on you instead of ephemeral bolt, then it affects you and you don't really have any protection at all and it you are considered to have a mystic defense of two for the purposes of determining what the spell in fact ends up doing to you. That is disbelief. I feel more like what this question may be leaning towards is examples of how you sense that something might be an illusion. For example, if you are interacting with somebody who has monstrous mantle cast on them, which is an illusionary spell, but it is not really directly damaging you, so you can't disbelieve it. But there is a chance that in the course of interacting with the individual that you might sense that it is an illusion in some Mm -hmm. capacity. For that spell specifically, a couple of ways that you might notice that, and this is something that as a game master you will need to sort of improvise in the moment or come up with based on the specific circumstances. If a player character is being attacked by an opponent that has Monstrous Mantle, and they, for example, get hit by that, and they attempt to avoid blow, the avoid blow can act as a sensing test because they are sort of interacting with what the illusion is presenting to them. And if they Mm -hmm. roll well enough, they might notice when I tried to dodge or block this attack, again, kind of coming up with something in the spur of the moment, I noticed that the claws of this monstrous form actually kind of just passed right through my shield. Mm -hmm. Or I thought I was going to avoid it, but I saw that the claws raked my clothes, but wait, there actually isn't any damage to them. Coming up with something in the moment that you could use as sort of a justification of how the illusion and the way that the character interacted with it revealed that it was an illusion in some capacity. Yeah, it just requires a little bit more narration. Yeah. uh, Direction. uh, Yeah, a little bit more maybe visualization of what might be going on. In situations like that, where you've got a combat where there is a lot more clear-cut sense of the test that is being done to interact with it. Or, for example, if you are attacking somebody that has Monstrous Mantle cast on them, a similar sort of thing. If your attack test, your melee weapons test, is high enough Mm -hmm. that you would sense the illusion, then you could tell from the way that, you know, you actually hit, or when the force of the blow kind of ran through your arm, you notice that it happened fraction of a second or a second later than you felt that it would have because it was passing through this illusory stuff before it hit the real target. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's tough to sort of say, provide some examples. I mean, we've done a couple here, but, you know, without grabbing the list of the illusionist spells (laughs) and going through and saying, okay, this is an illusion. Here are a couple of ways that you might do this. It really comes down to What kind of test is being performed? Is it a test that would interact with the illusion in such a way that it might reveal its illusory nature? Mm -hmm. This can be a little bit more difficult outside of combat than it is in combat, because there are a lot of tests being thrown around in combat that could potentially do that. Yeah. But then it's just a matter of coming up with a way that that interaction could reveal that it is an illusion. And if you prepared the illusion ahead of time, or you know what kind of illusory situation that a player character might be interacting with, 
maybe take a couple of minutes when you're prepping for your scenario to come up with a couple of thoughts of, of how that might be. Sure. You know, a little bit of creativity, a little bit of improvisation. You could always do a sort of thing that I like seeing happen from time to time, which is if you can't think of anything, you can say, okay, your interaction, your test here has revealed to you that this is in fact an illusion. How do your, how does your character notice that? Yeah. Put that creative ball into the player's court, give them an opportunity to sort of narrate that interaction and Let perhaps provide some character insight or whatever into how they realize that this is the case. Maybe they could tie it into one of their character's knowledge skills or previous bits of experience that they've had to provide some insight or whatever in that regard. That's certainly something that you can do as well if you as a game master are stumped. Yeah, this is, after all, collaborative storytelling, yeah. so share it with the player. Okay, next, we have one from Aaron. A little bit longer. Uh, good morning, chaps. Chaps, I believe that is the first time we've ever been called chaps in this podcast. Just wanted to share that I'm introducing some old edition players to fourth edition, and in fact, two brand new players to Earth Dawn as well. One Four player us. group. Pardon? Saying one of us, one of us. <laughs> it's a four-player group getting ready to hit the streets of Barter Town, explore the serpent, and battle the horrors of Parlaint, all in the name of passions and in honor of the good folks at Fassa who are building this wonderful world we all love. To my problem, one of the players in the group is actually the person who introduced me to Earth Dawn way back in the 90s and is a rules and lore sponge like nobody I have ever known. Have you heard Josh on the podcast? I'm just going to ask that question. If it was printed for Earth Dawn before 4th edition, he could probably tell you in what book and what page number it appears on. I just not. My concern is, while my 4th edition knowledge is superior to his in that I have read the books, he has them, just hasn't read them yet, but his knowledge of the world is far beyond mine. Do you have any experience running a game for someone who knows the system better? And how do you handle those moments where you might come into conflict? This could just be a confidence thing, running a game for people who I have a lot of respect for in the gaming world and have far more experience overall than I do. Maybe I just need to get over it and play my game. I also want to offer my thanks once again for the podcast. It has sparked some great ideas for my new campaign and it's excellent source of information. I will be heading back over previous episodes for my own game preparation and have pointed my new players in the direction of it too for them to explore some of their character options. Wish me luck. Kind regards, Aaron. So I have to say, I don't really have that experience. <laughs> I don't either. Because <laughs> I'm the lore expert for my group and Josh is, I assume, for anybody else he ever encounters. This is where I really think that a session zero, a pregame conversation would really come in handy, where you can be honest with this friend of yours, this fellow player. Yeah. And say, look, you know a lot more about the world. You have been soaking in this setting to a greater or lesser extent for quite some time and know a lot of details about the setting and the lore. I find that a little intimidating. You know, you can be honest about that, that yeah. I don't want us to come into conflict over something. And there are a couple of different ways that, that you could try and approach this. And there are variations on this that, that you could have. Again, I think probably more of the concern would be in terms of the setting and lore material as opposed to the rules. I think there would certainly, if he's worth anything, would be a recognition on his part that 
the fourth edition rules, while they may be familiar, are going to be different enough, especially in some key ways, that he can't necessarily take things for granted. Yes. And so maybe would sort of lean towards your, as the game master, really would sort of be the one that's ultimately making the rulings and adjudicating things Mm -hmm. for the game. Being willing to accept that the way that he remembers things may not necessarily be the way that they are anymore, especially from a rules point, but also perhaps from a setting standpoint. So to get back to what I was originally saying, I think there are two main ways that you can approach it with perhaps some degree of compromise in between them. One, lean on his knowledge of the setting Mm -hmm. to help you out with stuff. Not that you necessarily need him to help you out with writing the adventures, obviously, or planning sort of the individual sessions because there's a certain amount perhaps of surprise and not wanting to spoil what's going on kind of thing, but recognizing that there are some things that he might have a better knowledge of. And if you are planning and you're unsure about something to tap him as a, as a general question uh, about things, right? So that's one thing that you could certainly do. The other is to, again, all of this as part of an initial campaign planning, getting ready for things, session zero type discussion saying, I recognize that there are a lot of things that you know, but this is the game that I am going to be running. And there may be choices that I make or things that I do that may not line up with what you know about things because either it may have changed a little bit for fourth edition, particularly if we're talking about historical events or specific plot developments and whatnot. Timeline. Yeah. Yeah. Timeline. Or just in general, what I have decided to have happen Mm -hmm. in terms of portrayal of individual characters, name givers or whatever that I am doing for a particular reason. And I want to avoid there being any kind of conflict or sense that you are not satisfied with things because the choices that I'm making don't line up with what you're expecting or hoping for from the game. I certainly know if you haven't, one of the things that you might do, if you can track down some of the episodes of the Legends of Earthdawn podcast, where you have a situation where you have a game master, Cliff, who Mm -hmm. has a player, me, in the game that is a lot more knowledgeable about things than he is, and see how that interaction plays out. Things that are that are examples, things that happen. You know, one of the ways that I tried to approach it as a player in that situation mm-hmm. is I am here as a resource if you want me to be. If you ask. And yeah. if you are going to ask me to provide some background or fill in some information or whatever, I'm happy to do so. Mm-hmm. But it is your story and what you are choosing to do and the things that are taking place in it are ultimately up to you. And I want to support you providing all of us a good time. And I'm happy to provide whatever resources you want me to in that ultimate goal. Yeah. But it's 
your show, it's not my show. Yeah, if the Game Master wants to contradict canon, that's their prerogative to do so. Um, I have an idea for you as well to tack onto one of Josh's. Uh, in using that player as a resource, make sure that that player has the has a skill, a knowledge skill of bar save history. That way, or whatever. He can not, yeah, or whatever. That way, not only can he inform you, but he can help inform the other players as well at the same time and keep it in the game. That's an idea I had. Otherwise, to Josh's other point, the timeline has advanced, what, 10 years, 20 years almost? So uh, About 10 years since sort of the original first edition stuff. I've lost track of the uh, amount of years. <laughs> it's been a while since we covered timeline, and I forget. 10 years-ish. Um, but yeah, that kind of advancement puts you at the advantage over his knowledge because you get to say, well, it advanced 10 years, I'm going to change it this way. So his knowledge comes to a certain point and stops, and yours can begin from there. And so you can you can modify your game and your bar save that way. Those are my two suggestions. Yeah, and I think ultimately it comes down to, yeah, in some respects, you kind of need to get over it and run oh, man, the game. Go. Yeah. But also, I think that communication and being honest with this player that you are a little bit intimidated or nervous that you are going to let him down somewhat because you don't know some finer point of lore or whatever. I think being honest about that up front, if if they are, you know, a friend of yours, if they have somebody that you have known for a little bit, they should be cool with that and recognize that and do the same kind of work to make you as a GM feel comfortable that you would want to provide to your players in terms of the table environment that you're providing and all that sort of thing. Agreed. Because again, at the end of the day, you're all here to have some fun. So, I uh, hope that helps. On to one from Tim. You know, the wizard from Monty Python. Monty Python, yeah. Yes. Hi, Dan and Josh. Have been listening to your ideas about the adventuring in the mountains. I've had a few ideas myself that may be of use and a couple of questions. Idea first. To make travel interesting, you need to give the players meaningful choices. If the consequences to various actions and directions are understood, then choices could be had. As a climb, for instance, you could look at a rock face and see several routes, some being very difficult but shorter, and there's being longer but having staging points in them, and possibly not getting finished while it is still light. Then this gives the players choices to make. Food is also important to limit what you can bring and therefore how long you can stay out searching for the best way through. This will probably need some details on foraging, and there is also magic. Teehee. I've used penalties of fatigue, cold, and how wet the characters are as the enemies the PCs have to contend with. I've found involving more extended skill tests, as in having to get a number of successes, can help with this, especially the climbing. I.e., you could have a choice of either six successes at a target number of six for an easy route, or two successes at a target number of ten for a harder but more direct route. My question. My group will probably shortly be leaving their care for the first time. They don't know it yet, but the care is in the Badlands, near the edge and relatively close to Trevar. Any thoughts on what the Badlands will look like and what I should throw at them? I have a quick look at Panda's blog, so I have a few ideas, along with Drought, Dread Iota, and possibly Sandstorms. They'll be around third circle by the time they get out, I think. Anyway, thanks for the continuing podcast. It definitely brightens my Wednesday or Thursday commute. Tim. In terms of visual impressions, there are a couple of things that immediately come to mind as good inspiration for the Badlands. Some of the more desolate areas of the Southwest Desert, 
Arizona, New Mexico, with a lot of barren rock and sort of starkly beautiful in its own way, but not a lot of resources or availability. Also, sort of like the salt flats and deserts of Nevada or Utah, likewise, could be a very similar inspiration for things. Death Any Valley the Mad Max films <laughs> in California. Yeah, the Mad Max films as well. Not the original Mad Max so much, Correct. but Road Warrior, Fury Road, Beyond Thunderdome, maybe a little bit less. Yeah, I agree. But um, Fury Road also. Obviously, you wouldn't have the petrol-fueled vehicles <laughs> racing along. But again, a very Details. like resource-poor, blasted, desert kind of environment is what you would have. Because not only do you have an area that was ravaged and corrupted seriously by the horrors, it is kind of close to Death's Sea. And so yes. there is also a lot of heat and whatnot that flows down as a result of that. Probably not much in the way of cloud cover or anything like that. So any kind of desert environment, I don't know that I would go so far as more of a sandy desert type thing, like the typical thoughts of the Sahara. Fair. But there are um, some spots in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at the tail end of the bit there mm -hmm. is also a lot of sort of rocky terrain, desert type terrain that could be inspirational for a Badlands type area, especially if you're talking about coming out of a care mm -hmm. that is in that sort of terrain. You want to think about where was the care built? Was it built in a hillside? What was the area like when the care was constructed? How might the scourge have changed that? Mm -hmm. So that the expectations, if they have any, of the player characters, based on the history and knowledge that they have from the care and the stories that have been passed down from before, yeah. how does that match up or contradict what they encounter when they open those. In terms of what to throw at them, Dread Iota are interesting. Certainly something that when we talked about them, I mentioned they really didn't get used often enough. Yeah. But I think any kind of desert-dwelling creature, especially if you might maybe throw a weak corruption mask onto it of mm -hmm. some sort... They're coming out of a care. There are a whole bunch of things that they might have heard stories about, but not know what they actually look like, like regular yeah. wildlife, like foxes or wolves or Lions deer or, or whatever. They yeah. will only have the experience of what was in the care with them and whatever stories or artwork that might have been passed down for them to see. Yeah. You can throw regular wildlife, he said with air quotes, yeah. with some kind of unsettling or off presentation or even masks. Well, masks, but even just yeah. regular wildlife, if you describe it in a way, they don't know what this is. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't know what this thing is. So you just describe it in a way that feels unfamiliar. Rather than saying, oh, this is a giant iguana, this is like some kind of weird, scaly creature that kind of is on its belly and has just find yeah. descriptions that present the 
familiar, which is to say perhaps familiar to the players, but in a way that is different and alien. I always call a snake a danger noodle. Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily go silly with it. <laughs> you know, you're you're bound to perhaps get a maybe get a little bit of silliness uh, if the tension is getting too much. That is a normal pressure valve for people to take. Yes. But yeah, I don't even think that you necessarily need to go super crazy with anything. But Plus, yeah, I mean, there's any number of stuff that you can do for them to encounter. Yeah. Um I'm also going to give you a spoiler there because uh, the next episode we're going to do 184, 85, whatever the heck we're on now, uh, we're going to cover surviving the inhospitable explorations of the Badlands uh, as well. So just hold on an extra week. We'll get there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Promise. That's our next episode. No lie. Uh, Okay. This one is from, hey, y'all. It's the 1879 GM, Mark. Uh, here to bother you again. Still no character voice, podcaster's choice this time. I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to go ahead and use my own voice. Just listen to episode 164. With regards to speeding up combat with a bunch of people, I do have a couple of suggestions, and a thing that I'm going to try soon. I'm run on Discord, using the excellent bots made by that guy whose name escapes me. However, entering the opposition's names and initiatives takes too long. I've started treating their initiative steps as target numbers that the players are rolling against. Then I delegate keeping track of the initiative to one of the players. I also have environmental effects that might go on initiative 10 or 20 or something, an idea I shamelessly stole from D&D. Hey man, all good Game Master tools are all good Game Master tools. As Josh suggested, there's not usually a need to run a combat all the way to the bitter end. Most enemies aren't suicidal. Furthermore, for the ones that do fight to the death, you don't have to play to the end. It's Once it's obvious the party is going to win, I just ask them how they win. What cool moves do you do to finish them off? Even further, even more, the players don't know the opposition's death or unconsciousness ratings, and you don't have to tell them. If the players do a cool move, that can be the finishing blow. Upshot, end the fight before it gets boring. Finally, the thing I want to try out in my next boss fight, doing damage is only part of the goal. The party has a couple of ways to win. Do a certain number of wounds, slay a key supporter, disable the magical biological clockwork device powering the villain's scheme, disarm the boss, get one PC out of the room with the villain's pattern item, knock the villain down, whatever! Once the party completes a certain number of those objectives, the villain is defeated. Of course, I'll need to telegraph some of the various objectives and be okay with the PCs coming up with the new ones in the moment. Thanks for the podcasting. Frank, Frank, Frank. Those are all really good thoughts. I had another one that just suddenly slipped out of my mind. Oh, yes. With regards to sort of boss fights, climactic battles, uh, endgame situations. Yeah, a slugfest where you basically just have one side and the other trading blows back and forth can be pretty boring. There was a thread that I was reading online somewhere that I now cannot recall off the top of my head, but it was discussing how there are perhaps some things from video games that a tabletop GM might bring into play in order to make things like climactic battles or showdowns with the big bad more interesting. Yeah. One of those is to kind of take a page from MMOs like WoW, boss battles, where there are different phases or different effects that are going off. 
one of the things that you can do, and I think I may have mentioned this on the show in the past, is even if you just have, say, one boss, going back to the Earthdawn game that I ran for the Crit Show, um, which is available in the feed if you haven't listened to that, the sort of plant tree horror boss thing at the end was one entity, but I ran it in that final combat as the main tree and then the sort of tendril things having their own actions, but they could be sort of dealt with separately as things that could be eliminated acting as a minion that is still part of the main opponent. Yeah. Do something like that, which allows you to play a little bit with the action economy, which is always something that's a little bit difficult to deal with sometimes when it comes to showdowns with a single powerful enemy. Yeah. You really need to be willing in some regards to bend the rules to provide an interesting tactical problem or an interesting challenge to your group and to know your player characters well enough to provide things that will be of interest or use or vulnerabilities in various ways to each of them so that they are engaged and able to take part in what's going on as opposed to simply be, okay, my turn's up, I roll melee weapons, okay, I hit, here's the damage. Yeah. Yawn. The other thing that comes to mind and part of what brings to mind the thought of most enemies do not fight to the death When things are at the point where it's slowing down or it's very clearly that it's a foregone conclusion, Mm -hmm. wrap it up. Yeah. Don't drag things out. I learned this lesson the hard way when in the first real long-term Earthdawn game that I ran, I was running a situation where the player characters were being led into a trap by an NPC that they trusted or who had at least thus far had given them reason to trust and were led into a trap where they got ambushed by a bunch of invi. Mm-hmm. And in this was a first edition game. So the invi, they had the paralytic venom ability. Yeah. Also, they were being supported by a high circle nethermancer who had friendly darkness. The enemy Nethermancer cast Friendly Darkness so that none of the player characters really could see what was going on, but all of the Invi minions could. Yeah. And I essentially ran that combat through to the point where all of the player characters were actually paralyzed and or unconscious. <laughs> I ran that fight too long. To the letter of the law. Yeah, it was fairly clear, not really quickly. The darkness didn't get dropped right away, but... Things were going a certain way, and then the darkness dropped, and it was, okay, they're all blind, but now I'm going to roll out five more rounds of combat while, you know, these things dish out the damage that's required to make them unconscious. Yeah. When it was fairly clear, like, after a round or so of that, that, yeah, this was what the the end situation was going to be. I was not killing them. The game had been going on long enough and so forth that they trusted what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I could have just wrapped it up and said, okay, here's what happens. (laughs) You are sort of all, you know, knocked unconscious or paralyzed and you sort of come to a little while later in this cell. Yeah. 
it was clear sort of after the fact that, you know, towards the end of that, that the players were getting bored and a little frustrated because they couldn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. And I was just sort of heaping abuse on them. And so, again, lesson learned. (laughs) No one to do the scene wipe from one scene to the next and go, yeah, "Yeah, it's just, yeah, we're going to hand wave the rest of this and be done. Yeah. uh, uh, Some great suggestions in there. And again, it learning pacing is a really valuable skill as a GM. And that's going to be something that you just learn with practice and by getting a sense of your players and talking to them, you know, doing your sort of postmortems after sessions, between sessions, whatever, saying, hey, you know, if there's something that you felt was not good or whatever, how did you feel about this? Talking to people and sort of improving your skills as a result of that. Stars and Wishes is a is a tool that's kind of used sometimes where at the end of a session or between sessions, what's a cool thing that's happened? What's something that you'd like to see happen in a future game? Yeah. Doing a, a little round the table sort of thing like that. Um, there's a game called Rapscallion, which has a mechanic in it called Luck, which is basically like sort of a bonus point. You can spend luck before a roll to add a plus one for each point of luck that you spend. It's a pirate game, and so there's a lot of, like, swashbuckly, daring-do kind of cool pirate stuff in it. But anytime somebody does something cool in the game, you can nominate that player to get a point of luck. Mm-hmm. Just in the moment to reward them for that. Um, there's totally. not really a specific mechanic along those lines in Earthdawn. But again, encouraging play, pointing out cool things, having that ongoing conversation of what's working, what's not, what would you like to see, what could I do better, Yeah, that kind of I, thing. I go for a camera point donation, why not? That's certainly something that you that you could institute, possibly. Well, folks, this is where we actually had one email left and thought that would be a very quick one to do. However, it ended up doubling our episode. So we had to cut it right here. You will not hear a sign-up from Josh, but we will be back in a week with the next episode, which literally is one email that has a whole slew of questions, also about 50 minutes long. So until next time, wait for part two for your legend.